Okay, so um, thank you very much uh, for uh, being here now for the second session. We've got Katie Darby, who is a writer, um, whose book title is on that bit of paper which is holding up the computer. So I've forgotten her, the name of your It's all right, it's called The Unpierced Heart. The Unpierced Heart. And she's also involved in Liars League, which is um, one you've co-founded, is that right? Yeah. Are you going to talk are you going to talk about Liars League? Um, I can afterwards. Fine. Um, or or during people ask me questions. No, and I would, it's something that I know I've never been to it but I've watched it I've watched the videos of it online and it's um, it's a literary night where stories are read out um, by actors, which is a brilliant idea because they kind of realised that authors are very often the not best, not best people are reading out their own work. I mean, that's the way I take it. I've been to some terrible author events by authors that I love, um, and uh, only to find that they're horrible, mumbly bores. Um, so that's something else that I advise you to check out. One of the things that is making the dream Seen, the literary scene in London seen pretty vibrant at the moment. It's been going for years. Yes, it has, yeah. Right. 2007. Um, however... We now have franchises in New York, Leeds, and Hong Kong. So. Um, that's not what we're going to be hearing about today. This is going to be more uh, innovative ways of um, thinking about writing, which I hope you can learn something from as well. Great. Okay, um, thanks very much everyone for coming along. Uh, I hope you had a nice Twitter fiction section. It's very sorry, I really wanted to see that one, but um, I was, alas, on my way here on a bus. Um, so, uh, yes, <coughs> trying new positions how to spice up your text life. Uh, one of those kind of racy titles that you give an incredibly dry academic session on, you know, something quite boring. Um, in this case, luckily, it is uh, something quite interesting, but it's always fun to try and do a kind of sorty title. Um, nothing to do with Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm sure you'll be very glad to hear. Um, it's basically my, my take on uh, talking about narrative and point of view, and some other elements of story as well. But um, I also teach, apart from being Lyles Egan, no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Um, as well as being a, a practising novelist and short story writer and running this uh, short story event, um, I also teach at City University and I teach short story writing and novel writing. So I get a lot of questions asked of me about structure, about narrative, voice, all that sort of thing. So I'm just going to give you a kind of mini sample of that today. And we've got some exercises as well. Um, everyone has a pen and paper? Yes? Excellent, good. We'll come well prepared. Oh, you don't have a pen? Oh, oh good, yeah. I'd offer you a marker, but they're not very good. Um, so, um, I, I was having a look last night and making sure that I covered everything that's in the blurb, which I wrote about three months ago. Uh, so I think I've gone through it uh, about generating ideas and uh, teaching old plots and new tricks and that sort of thing. Um, so, first off, uh, what I'm going to ask you about is where you get ideas from. Normally, I'm in that position. As a writer, if I go to a book festival or if I read a bit or something like that, and people go, God, wow, ideas, where do you get them from? And that's quite a common question to be asked. Now, I am asking you, I would like to know when you have ideas for fiction or stories or blog posts or whatever it is, um, 
where you get them from, how, how they come to you. The news. The news. The news. Okay, current events. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Life experiences. Life experiences, yeah. Personal things that have happened to you. Sometimes things that have happened to other people um, that are that spark off an idea in you or that are worth writing about. A lot of fiction is autobiographical <coughs> to some degree. Um, some much more so. Some, you know, it's, it's a very kind of thin thread that joins them. But yeah, you, yeah? Um, I was extremely bored one day when a scenario popped up in my head. <laughs> okay, daydreaming. Yeah. Daydreaming is a brilliant, brilliant source of ideas. Uh, yes, sir? Yeah, reading other people's books. And reading other people's books is another brilliant source of ideas. Not in a plagiaristic kind of way, but in the sense that they've done that with that idea, and it makes me think of something else that I could do. Or I really like that minor character. I wonder what would happen if I put them in a... You know, in a detective novel or something like that. Yes, other people's books. I'm sorry. Traveling. Traveling. Yeah. Why do you think traveling? That's it's that's it's been said that travel broadens the mind. I think it also sort of broadens and stimulates the imagination. I think it gives you a different cultural experience when you go to different countries. You see things through different lens. Yeah. So it that way broadens your perspective. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I quite agree, actually. It gives you new experiences, um, and you're then forced to kind of encounter things for the first time. And when we live in, you know, a, a single place or a single country, certainly, all our lives, and, you know, we have our friends around us and so forth, we can get into a sort of cultural rut, as it were, and nothing is new to us anymore. You know, there might be something on YouTube or whatever, but, you know large kind of uh, culture clashes or, you know, big big things that um, are unusual and strange and challenging to our normal way of life don't come along very often unless we go out and look for them. Um, but, you know, to go to Alaska or to go to Borneo or somewhere like that um, is a, a cultural shock, but it's also a cultural stimulation. So yes, often when people kind of go travelling, they write a diary or a blog or they want to write fiction or something like that. Because there's so much to write about. Everything's new. And you say it's looking at it through a, through a new perspective. Um, and that's quite right as well, I think. Um, because you're an outsider for a change. We're used to being, you know, insiders in our own culture. But when we're suddenly outsiders, we're seeing it from a different point of view and we're, we're encountering things anew. Yeah. Any other sources of ideas, people? History. History, yeah, absolutely. Well, yesterday's news. So we've got today's news, news and current events, history. Things also about how things could have gone differently. Yeah, the what if, what, what if, if scenario. If. Yeah, absolutely. So like um, Philip K. Dick wrote a novel called The Man in the High Castle about what if Japan and Germany had won the Second World War. And it's a very powerful idea. And of course, uh, Robert Harris wrote... Fatherland, uh, which is a similar kind of notion, which just goes to show that even if it has been done before, if you do it again, well, with your own perspective, in your own way, that story can be retold. So never worry about things not being original. What's original about your writing is that you are writing it. It's your perspective, your point of view. And that's what you bring to the table. Um, one last one? Um, senses, like... You know, taste, sounds, yeah. visual, how something like individually, and then how Sure. Sensory stimulation. Yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, a lot of poets incline towards that kind of stimulation as well. It's, um, 
it's sort of wordless experience, but then you try and translate it into words. Yeah, but physical sensations, um, that kind of thing, uh, can really set up ideas. Oh, sorry, I thought I heard someone say something. Um, cool, good. Glad to know that you have sources of ideas, all of you, and maybe you've heard of some today that you wouldn't normally look at. Um, when I do this exercise with my, um, my smaller classes, um, my ones at City, what I then tend to do at this point, after we've been through an exhaustive list and everyone goes, dreams, and are you eavesdropping? Alan Bennett does this. He sits on the back of buses and just listens to people talking, not just to get the dialogue right, but just to hear the random things they talk about. And if anyone saw that, I think it was in The Guardian, 10 million tiny plays about Britain. Yeah, it was sort of a flash fiction thing with just kind of overheard conversations. And they can just, you know, they're bizarre. They're bizarre and extraordinary. They make you wonder what if. And those are my two favourite words when it comes to writing fiction, what if. Um, so, uh, normally I would take out a bag of random objects and I would pass around the random objects and you all have an object. Um, but as I don't have 70 objects on me, um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you five minutes. You've got four, five photos there. Pick one of them. You can pick two of them if you like. And I would like you to start writing. Start writing the beginning of the story inspired by one of those five. Okay?
Time's up, ladies and gents. Now, this is going to be the interesting bit. Uh, could I have two volunteers to read out their work? I will simply pick victims if I don't. Yes, okay, one lady there and one lady there. Fantastic. <laughs> could you read us what you had? Oh, can you tell us which picture? Uh, the Rubik Cube. Ah, okay, great. Go for it. It was the 80s and it was a design firm where people played the Rubik's Cubes and had Newton's cradles clapping on their desks. Giles always had the hippest new toys, and the one on his desk was a little bed of pointless nails where a rested hand would leave a perfect human impression. Giles always had the latest things. He wore his jacket sleeves turned up to show the lining, the Paul Smith shirt furled, up, furled beneath to show an inch of lightly hair-suit forearm. Giles was immaculately dressed, lightly scented, but unlike a proportion of his male colleagues, very interested in women. When his latest conquest, the morning after, praised his prowess in bed, Giles explained, don't tell me, tell your friends. Giles had perpetually runny nose. Okay, Giles. Has anyone ever used that line in your hearing? That don't. And that is actually Nick from a notorious figure Wow, fantastic. Okay, so Giles, this is interesting. All right, we'll come back to that in a minute. What's your name, lady? Annie. Annie, that's right. I think I recognise you. Um, what's your name? Lucy, but mine's also about the Rubik's Cube. So oh, shall we have another? I think this gentleman at the front, did you do the Rubik's Cube? Mine was also the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> <laughs> it's got iconic strength, hasn't it? Did anyone not write? You did the... The Canyon. Oh, the Canyon, Grand Canyon. Oh, it doesn't. It can be anything you want. It doesn't matter. There's no way you should get this exercise wrong unless you just sit there for five minutes with a pencil on your nose. Um, okay, Grand Canyon. Yes. Um, we were out at a deep canyon. You said we had to reach the bottom of it to get to where we need to be. All of this fuss just because of Mama's ring. They think it has special powers. Who am I to not believe them? After all, I did travel to this strange world on my own. There was a narrow path leading down the cliff, and being on a horse made it seem even higher. I began to feel dizzy and nauseated. That's what I got. Okay, and what's your name? Sharon. Hello, Sharon. Um, great. So what's interesting about this is obviously the stories are marvellous and interesting too. But what I'm really looking for is the default choices that you make when I just go, here's a picture of a story, yeah? That you don't even think about. You just go, oh, I've only got five minutes, I've got to write a story. And the points of view that you choose, which in your case, Annie, was third person with Giles and past tense. And in your case, it's quite an unusual one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. First person. First person plural to begin with. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then there was, uh, did you go into I? I just, I'm trying to remember, but you started with we, didn't you? Yeah, we and then, yeah, I. Uh, we and then I, okay. I was like, is she going to go we all the way through? Is this going to be a kind of you know, plural point of view. Um, but those are the two most common, basically. I and, uh, and he, she. All right? Viewpoints. I've got you log cuts for all of, the, all of the points I'm trying to make because, you know, it's the internet and it's a Saturday morning. You deserve log cuts. Um, first person, I. Second person is you. You'll find this quite a lot in poetry. Um, a lot of poetry is written to a sort of absent other. Um, but less, less often, less commonly in fiction, 
because it's more of a fluid viewpoint. It tends to mimic the effect of either first person or third person. So if you're writing a you uh, story, sometimes that... In real life, if I'm talking to you, or you, or both of you, then you're there, do you know what I mean? Um, It it has an effect. Um, But the you who is the reader is a a slippery beast. It's very difficult to, uh, um, to dictate what they're going to do. Um, Italo Calvino does it in If on a Winter's Night a Traveller, if anyone's read that. That's a book about being a reader, about the experience of reading, and it's really unnerving because the author talks directly to you. You're sitting there going... I'm sorry? Italo Calvino, If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. And I just recommend him anyway, C-A-L-V-I-N-O. He's really interesting. If you want to think of ways to go crazy with fiction... Uh, Calvino's your man. He does all sorts of interesting uh, original stuff. And it addresses you. And you know, there's lines in the book that say, you, reader, sitting back in your armchair, turning the pages of this book. Of course, it was written before Kindles. And it used to be that you could ca- at least you could count on the fact that a reader would be, would be reading a conventional book. Not anymore. That's why you can be quite difficult. There are some short story writers who favour it. Laurie Moore is one of them. But first person, overwhelmingly common, you know, uh, sort of David Copperfield, to begin at the beginning, I was born. Third person is, is the other big one. Um, you can use multiple points of view, which can either be third or first, or, you know, uh, plural first, as you did, which is we, or plural third, which is they. Um, you can play around with it. Um, in my novel, I use multiple points of view because they're all first person and um, I wanted the story to have what I think of, but I think it's probably not called that really. But I think of it as the Rashomon effect. Has anyone seen the film Rashomon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So it's the same set of events told by different characters every time. And every time you hear the story from another person it changes slightly, and previous, you know, things that you've seen previously are cast into doubt. Um, So I had three points of view, and every time you get a new eye perspective, a new eye, or indeed I, um, on the matter, then it reveals new information, and it makes what you believed before seem more doubtful, okay? So it's a sort of (laughs) kaleidoscope effect, um, or a rational effect. So you can choose multiple points of view. So what I'd like you to do now with your story that you've written, I would like you to look at the point of view you've chosen and uh, change it. You don't have to change it now. Just write down what you change it to. So if you've got a first-person story, you can change it to second-person. If you've got third-person, you can change it to first-person plural, whatever. Just make a choice. Don't have to rewrite it yet. Um, I'll tell you what I had. And I'll give you an example. This is one I prepared earlier. Um, Cinderella was what I went with. And to be fair, this did, this did take me five minutes to type last night, so this is <coughs> useful. Once upon a time, there was a girl called Cinderella who was very unhappy because her mother was dead and her father had married another wife who was very cruel to her. Cinderella's stepmother and her two daughters, who were as ugly as Cinderella was beautiful, treated her like a slave and made her fetch and carry for them, cook and clean and wait on them hand and foot. They made her sleep in the ashes of the hearth too, and that was why she was called Cinderella. Now, I can't tell the whole story, 
But if I change the viewpoint from third person, which is she, to first person, it is quite difficult to keep it the same, but I'm going to give it a go. Once upon a time, I was a girl called Cinderella. Let's assume she's changed her name. I was very unhappy because my mother was dead and my father had married another wife who was very cruel to me. All of a sudden, we're closer into the story. We've got a character in the text who's telling their own story, who's addressing the reader directly. Um, and that can be one of the advantages when you're sort of humming and hawing about you know, your masterpiece, your story or your novel or whatever it is. And thinking about which perspective to use, whether it should be first person or third person, it's always worth thinking about the advantages that first person carries, that you can do with first person, and the things that third person can do which first person doesn't do so well. So the big one for me with first person is intimacy. It's the sense of being addressed by a real person, and it's what the earliest of the English novelists used I think pretty much exclusively. Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, and Mole Blanders, and Journal of Plague Gear, and all this kind of thing. Um, he was sort of counterfeiting true life stories. The novel was in its infancy, and kind of nobody really knew what it was meant to be, but the memoir had you know, always existed. And he based Robinson Crusoe on the story of a sailor called Alexander Selkirk, who had been stranded on a desert island. And uh, it's written first person. And Moore Flanders is written first person too. And uh, Defoe didn't get any stick about not being able to do a female voice because it was published, you know, without the author's name on the cover um, because it was masquerading as a real confession. Um, so it gives it a sort of credibility as well, even though in our heads we know that this is a fiction we're reading. If on the page it's a character saying, this happened, I did this, it happened to me, I am going to tell you my story, at some level it makes us believe, we want to believe it. You know, in all our social interactions, believing somebody is the default position, because otherwise society couldn't work. You know, somebody tells you something and you assume it to be true, and it's really quite difficult to... You know, uh, to, to, to get out of that mindset, uh, which is why, you know, the, the best fiction. I read this the other day that if you, the brain is reading about an experience like um, sort of sniffing a flower or running along a track, um, it has, it, it acts as though it's, it's having that experience, which is uh, quite a bonus uh, for the author. I mean, we've always known that really, but it's so interesting to know that experience is, is replicated in a, in a sort of meaningful way in the brain when you read about doing things, which, again, is probably why Fifty Shades of Grey is so popular. Explains <laughs> uh, a lot. Um, so, first person has the advantage of intimacy. Third person, what advantages might third person have? What does that do for authors? Like maybe think of your favourite book. Yeah. It allows them to... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it gives a much wider yeah. scope. You, as the author, one of the things that most people like about uh, writing fiction when they discover it is um, the power, the godlike power that you have over your characters and the, the omnipotence and the omniscience. So you can do anything and you can see everything and you can do what Thackeray does in Vanity Fair, which is he does have. Um, well, 
and it's a novel without a hero. He has a protagonist, Becky Sharp, and we tend to follow her very closely. You know, she's our main character. We see her adventures. We know what she's thinking most of the time. But he doesn't stop there. He goes into other people's heads. He jumps from you know a ballroom in London to uh, to a battlefield in Waterloo. Uh, he jumps sort of continents and time and um, has sort of uh, goes into drawing rooms of you know, six different characters and follows other characters home. And he's got this power. He can see everything. And anything that looks interesting, you can have a chapter about it or you can, um, you can have Becky Sharp talking to her husband. She leaves the room and will stay with the husband and see how he feels about that conversation they've just had. So it's, it's, the, uh, it's the range and the scope, you know, the power to kind of look down this bird's eye view and pick a character and go into their head. Um, if you are trapped in a first-person viewpoint, you can't credibly uh, do all that cool stuff, uh, sort of flying between uh, people. You can move first-person viewpoints. This happens quite a lot in thrillers. Um, sometimes they'll have two viewpoints... They're usually third person, actually, close to third person. But they might have the detective's viewpoint and the killer's viewpoint. So you, you, ha- you see the story from two sides. This is the multiple point of view technique. Um, but often it is, uh, it's one that you will be looking at if you're, if you're writing a, th- a thriller. You're probably not going to do multiple points of view in a short story, but why not give it a try? Uh, it can be done. It should be done. If it can be done, you can give it a go. And this is all about playing around and experimenting. So you know, if you want to tell your story backwards, do that. The wonderful thing about writing short stories and flash fiction is that you don't have to stick with it for five years and 100,000 words. Uh, if you make a mistake, no problem. It's done by lunchtime. Um, Excuse me. Is it a good example of a multiple points of view? Yeah. Uh, which... Oh, uh, sure. Well, yes, that's what who said that? That was the voice from... Yes, absolutely. It's um, Anna and the guy... What's no no not Francis yeah. the farmer guy isn't it? Yeah, Levin. Levin, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there's a book by Orhan Pamuk which really stretches it called My Name Is Red, which has about twelve different points of view. Um, the help. The help. Yes, absolutely. The um, ghost road as well. And the ghost road. The ghost road. I haven't read the ghost road. Uh, it's like two. It's like mainly two characters' points of view, but. It's Tells it in third person, and yeah. so like one of them and is remembering stuff that Person, so it's he, but we're in his thoughts. We know what he's what you think he's going through at any point. Yeah, it's kind of like in first person when he's writing his diary. Yeah, and like the first couple of chapters, and it's like, oh, uh, uh, he's like thinking in his head, and you see what he's thinking. Yeah, it's kind of weird. 
Okay, sounds like an interesting kind of mix of yeah. close third and first person. That's the other good thing that first person is, is really ideal for, I have to say, while we're on that. Um, close third is good, but first is better. If you have um, a reprehensible character or an unsympathetic character, and the two that I always think of are Patrick Bateman from American Psycho and Humbert Humbert from Lolita. One's a serial killer, one's a paedophile. Do we really want to spend time with these characters? Well, it turns out that yes, a lot of people do. These books are still very, very popular. And um, the reason that I think um, you sort of get over the revulsion and you're seduced into following these characters' stories is that they are told first person so we understand what is going on with them. Because seen from the outside, both Patrick Bateman and Humbert Humbert, the things they do are inexplicable and revolting and, you know, you just kind of go, Ugh. But because you see them, and they're both kind of unreliable, they're both kind of mad, because you hear their voices and you see the world the way they see the world, however distorted that is, it creates sympathy. So the reader feels sympathy for these characters, which otherwise, you know, in, in third person, particularly distant third, you would just go, put it down. It's too horrible. But because we're seeing it from the inside, it's a completely different viewpoint. Mm, that's um, you Dexter as well. I'm sorry? Dexter. 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 Yeah, there's an element Dexter. of that. Yeah, absolutely. He's, a, he's our hero. He's our protagonist. We know he thinks he's doing the right thing. And it's an interesting question that that series poses. Is a serial killer who hunts other serial killers you know, really a good thing for society? He's sort of like a super vigilante. Hmm. Don't have to answer the question, but it makes the you know it makes the audience think. And yes, sorry, lady over there. Yeah. I was just going to say. So, are you suggesting that if you, because usually when I've been going to work with they say you should have, in a simplistic way, a good guy and a bad guy, a good you know a Do they protagonist really? and a hero. Well, that's what I've been. Oh, an antagonist and a protagonist. That's a bit different, I think. If they've simplified it into good guy and bad guy. No, well, that's me simplifying. But what I wanted to ask you was to follow up from what you're saying. Are you saying that if you're going to have like Guy or yeah, yes. Yeah. Were you saying that it would be better to write it from a first person perspective to keep the reader engaged? It, I think it helps. The, the worst guys that I can think of in literature who are also compelling characters, they're not likeable, but they're compelling, um, are Patrick Bateman and Humber Hubbard, and they're both first person. I don't think that's any coincidence. I would say it certainly helps because nobody's a villain to, to themselves, you know? They think they're doing the right thing. Robert Mugabe is probably, you know, full of self-justification. Do you know what I mean? But, but if they thought, God, I'm a terrible person, yeah, absolutely. Well, even Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. Exactly. It's, it's a hugely skewed point of view. But, you know, how could people live with themselves if they thought they were doing evil? You know, as far as they're concerned, it's a means to an end. Um, so I'll ask you, how do you yeah. feel about books where it's just the same character, so it's third person subjective, then we move to the first person within the same book? Yes. Um, same character? Few, yeah, same character too. And I've seen that a few times. And hmm. I'm just thinking, why do they do that? I find that a little distressing. I mean, why? Changing point of view. Yeah, yeah. It is. It can be distressing, and that might be the, the point. You know, as a reader, you kind of get comfortable in a particular viewpoint. And when the author shakes that up, it's, it's usually a good reason. The last third, you know. 
Uh, right. Atonement? Uh, oh. I mean, that was done for a reason, of course. Right, yes. I, I think my students have spoiled this for me. I still should read it. Oh, sorry, but no, 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 they've spoiled it for me because whenever I go through kind of structuring class, someone goes, oh, atonement, there's a big twist at the end. And I'm like, no. Yeah. The twist was the fact that it changed the point of view. I was really upset and I felt like I'd punched in the stomach. Well, why have you done this? Yeah. You know why? Because you believed it until then. Yeah? You're like, I know this is a fiction. But I'm suspending my disbelief and I'm going to treat it and react to it as though it's real. And then it all turns out to be a story, effectively, by one of the author characters. A lie. And you go, oh, author, how could you do that to me? I trusted you. It breaks the contract between the, the reader and the writer. And I think, done deliberately, I mean, from what I know of it, um, I, I think that's, that's, that's done very deliberately and... A lot of people will hate it, but others will go, oh, wow, props, you know, that really, that works. It does what it, what it, uh, what it needs to, which is kind of shock you out of complacency and surprise you, I suppose. But yes, I find it a bit difficult to deal with. Okay, so viewpoint. Um, the next thing that we have a look at is tense. <coughs> I've only got past and present and uh, future there. I did have cheeseburger. I will make my own cheeseburger with blackjack and hookers. Uh, so that's our future bender version. Um, past tense for Annie, past tense for Sharon. That's the most common one. That's, that's how we're used to encountering all our factual content, pretty much. If you think about the news, <coughs> today a bus crashed in central London. The, you know, the Premier of Israel was in a meeting with... It's all past tense. Um, so that's how we're used to, to getting facts it has a sort of ring of authenticity a lot of people default to past tense who wrote their story in present tense hi, be proud <laughs> what, higher, I can't even see one, two, three, four. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's maybe about a quarter to a third and is that your default do you know no, I try to make deliberate decisions so that's a conscious you're already yeah. kind of pushing yourself out yeah. of your comfort zone yes, yeah. oh, okay and other people did yeah um, I change halfway through from kind of catching the lead up to where the story is now and then change it to present oh okay alright yeah so you had a sort of a flashback at the beginning it sounds like and then you, you brought us up to, to now here and now yeah. Uh, it, for me, it depends on the, the situation and whether it fits the story better for it to be present. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know, of course, um, when you start writing. If you have a really clear idea, then you can go, okay, that's definitely, that's got to be a past tense story, but that's got to be a present tense story. Present tense gives us immediacy. Okay, this is, um, I'm just trying to, is it Clarissa that's written in letters? There's. Yeah, and it's all present tense. My master is at the door. He knocks, he knocks. I must lay down my pen, that sort of thing. Um, there's a famous like, 18th century novel which is written as letters and it's mostly present tense and it's just ridiculous because this, this maid is writing letters and she literally says, my master knocks at the door. He approaches me. I must, you know, I must stop writing kind of thing. Would you do that? Would you sit down and actually write that? Um, but normally present tense uh, doesn't have um, a sort of framing device whereby it's a diary or a letter or something like that. 
Um, usually present tense is just sheer narration um, from the author or from the character, the character narrator. So um, you can choose. Did anyone write in the future? Nobody writes in the future anymore. <laughs> Did you? No, no, I heard feature. Oh, you, you set it in the future? No, I heard feature. Oh, feature? Yeah, yeah. You've written a feature in that five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. No, no, no. Um, no future tense. Okay, so look at your story. See what tense you chose. Choose another one. What's right. a good example of a future tense story? Oh, um, well, they're very hard to write. I can't off the top of my head. I can think of many stories set in the future. But what I can do is recommend The Restaurant at the End of the Universe by Douglas Adams, which has a brilliant bit where there's a guy who's been dead for a year for tax reasons. <laughs> and, they, and, and he has this wonderful skit where the guy's lawyer is, is talking to him in various different tenses. And, oh, and they've just come through different kind of time travel, you know, uh, wormholes or something. So I will have been eating in this restaurant. All sorts of complicated subjunctive and future tenses. Um, but you could, for example, with Cinderella, once upon a time, there will be a girl called Cinderella who will be very unhappy because her mother will die and her father will marry another wife who is very cruel, cruel to her, who will be very cruel to her. Okay? It's difficult to... Sustain, which is why most people choose not to, to bother. But you could do, if you had a story about a psychic, for example, you could mix up present tense or past tense, in fact, with future, and that would be a psychic vision. You know, the bus will be coming towards her as she steps out of the way. That sort of thing. Um, you know, science fiction sort of yeah. in the future, but they're using present yeah. and past. They you know it is the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nearly always. <coughs> Setting something in the future is very different from trying to write it in the future tense. Um, yes, one of, one of them is, uh, is, is a lot easier than the other, believe me. Um, so, yes, change your, change your tense. Not now, but write a different tense. And if you want a challenge, put it in the future. So what are we doing now? Uh, you just write down, look at, look at your story that you've written. If it's in past tense, write, change it, ch make a choice. Either say you're going to change it to present or to future tense, okay? You don't have to actually change it, just make a choice. If it's in present tense, you can go past or future. Now here's the setting. It took me a long time to find a medieval cat. <laughs> Doom cat, on the other hand, was all over the internet. So, did anyone set their story in the past? Yes? Yours? Yes, yours was 1980, so quite a recent past. What was your one? When was your one? Sorry. When? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, lady with long hair. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyone set their story in the future? No. So mostly we're defaulting to present. Oh, sorry. Is that the front? Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. Wait, how far ahead did you set it? Uh, very far future. Really? What was the story inspired by? The canyon. The canyon. It just follows a different planet. Oh, yes. It does, it does have a sort of Martian look to it, doesn't it? Fantastic. Okay. So these are your choices, past or present or future. So you've chosen future. Maybe you'll take that story and put it in the past. Yes, right. Um, the story that I'm working on is kind of like a 
this will happen and this doesn't happen. Sort ah, of. and like future she's possibilities. Meant to, she's meant to have a vision at the bottom of this cannula. I've just decided. Okay. <laughs> um, she's meant to have a vision because of touching some special rock or something, yeah. and like sees the end of the world if she doesn't do this certain thing. Oh wow! So you'll get an opportunity to use future and conditional. Yeah. This this might happen. This would happen if she doesn't do something. Okay. So I've got my my tense change here, um, and then I'll change the setting. So tense from past to present. My name is Cinderella. Uh, I'm very unhappy because my mother is dead and my father has married another wife who's very cruel to me. Cinderella in the future. My ident is Cinderella. I'm very unhappy because my biological mother died just after donating eggs to breed me. And my father has deleted her memory and downloaded another mate who's very cruel to me. <laughs> the things I'm using there are called tropes, okay? Have people heard of this word? How do you spell it? T-R-O-P-E-S. So tropes, so a trope, single, T-R-O-P-E. And um, a trope is a sort of a literary device or a motif or a cliché, you might think, of a particular genre. And what I've done is I've gone straight to sci-fi, I've gone to, you know, kind of uh, test tube babies, and I've gone to downloading people's personalities, and that sort of thing you see quite a lot in, uh, in uh, science fiction stories. And the example of, of tropes of other genres would be, uh, like in a Western, you might have a Mexican standoff when everyone's pointing guns at each other. Or if you watch a noir film or um, a thriller the detective, I have your gun and, my gun and badge on my desk by this morning. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a trope which is also um, a kind of a phrase that you might hear again and again. Is uh, that kind of like stereotypes of a certain Yes, sim of similar. A trope can be a character trope. It can be a situation trope. Like Mexican standoff is a situation trope. A character trope is the disillusioned alcoholic detective, okay, with the empty fridge. That's a character trope. Um, yeah, uh, the maverick or the maverick, you know. Um, but it can be a trope of setting, you know, an alien world with hostile monsters on it, or alternatively, you know, the kind of the abyss, which is the lovely aliens who just want to be peaceful. Um, okay, so change the setting. Look at what setting you chose. Change the setting. Go into the future or go into the past or narrative voice who tells the story. Here's, here's the choice, here's the choice of champions. So, authorial voice. We talked about omniscience, being able to do anything and see anything. Close third person is sort of the best of both worlds with, um, with third person. You, uh, close third person, you see people's thoughts and you're in their head and you're seeing through their eyes of maybe the protagonist just on their own. Maybe the protagonist and the antagonist. Maybe the protagonist, the antagonist, the wife. Oh, talking it over. Here we go. Here's an example of a good multiple viewpoint novel, Gentleman at the Front in the Orange Jumper. Talking it over by Julian Barnes. Three first-person perspectives. The wife, the husband, the lover. Um, so work out whether it's you, you, the author, talking in your story, or whether it's a character talking. If it's a character talking, it's going to be first person. Your character does not have to be alive. There are some 
dead characters. You can do interesting things. What I'm saying here is you don't have to kill your character, but wouldn't it be interesting if your story's told by a ghost? It's a way of just kind of going, you know, if you have a story and you feel it lacks something, you know, maybe it's not told the right way, maybe it needs to be told present tense and given that urgency and immediacy. Maybe it's a story about a murder, and instead of telling it from the point of view of the detective, you tell it from the point of view of the victim. For example, there are only seven basic plots in literature, and I'll give a sweetie to anyone who can name them all. Um, But there are so many ways of telling a story using different combinations of the tense and the time and the person and the setting um, that these stories can be told over and over and we never get bored because they're told in different ways. They, they reach us you know, through different media and we hear different voices and they feature different characters. So you can do a lot of interesting things with your characters and with your stories that you might not have thought on. So you could have a character uh, change your viewpoint character from alive to dead, perhaps. You can have an extraordinary narrator, um, someone who's out of the usual. You could have an impossible narrator. We can argue about this. I would say that a vampire is an impossible narrator. Interview of the vampire. It's not the most recent vampire hit, but nonetheless. A superhero. Uh, There's a book called Soon I Shall Be Invincible, which is multiple viewpoints from the point of view of a superhero and a supervillain. And that was a lot of fun to read, and I wanted to read it because it was about the practical problems of being a supervillain, you know, having to get changed on the bus and go to the supervillain meeting and, you know, still look really scary. Um, what was the name of that one, I'm sorry? Uh, it's called Soon I Will Be Invincible. Um, so you can tell that the author kind of favours the supervillain uh, over the over superhero. Um, you could have a, a, a mad person as a narrator, an unreliable narrator who doesn't know what's going on or who misinterprets things. Curious incident of the dog in the night time. It's not a mad character, but he has a very different viewpoint from the average person. Doesn't and that kid have like, photographic memory? He does. He has an eidetic memory and he is uh, autistic. And so he finds it... Oh, so it's Asperger's. Apologies, he's on the autistic spectrum, so he's Asperger's. And he finds it very difficult to interpret things, particularly emotions, but events as well, um, that people would normally know what's going on. Uh, So he is lacking in some ways, and he has kind of extra powers of perception in other ways. Uh, Excuse me, what's the name of this book? It's called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And the name of the author? Oh, Mark Haddon. Yeah. Mark Haddon. Yeah, it was huge in the UK, which is why everyone's like, oh, yes. (laughs) The National Theatre have just adapted it. It's it's first-person viewpoint of a 12-year-old boy. That's an unusual narrator as well. You don't get a lot of adult fiction narrated by children. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird is one of them. Scout is an extraordinary narrator. If anyone's seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on a bird theme or read that book, it's narrated by Chief Bromden, who is mute. All right? So a narrator who can't speak... Can you say that I just writes the story? The, book? the Curious Incident is of, of the, the Dog in the Nighttime. Is this still the one about the narrator who's... Who's Asperger's? Yes, that's right. Yes. 
Yes. Just Google Curious Incident, you'll find it. I thought you spoke about something new. Oh, oh, no, that's... Sorry, I'm, I'm running ahead of myself. No, that is one through the cuckoo's nest. Oh, okay. Which you probably heard of the film, but it was based on a novel. Um, and anyway, they're both brilliant, and they both have... You can even have a narrator who is inanimate or is not human, so you can have an animal. I think Black Beauty is told by the horse. Is yeah. That, yeah, I've not seen it, but yeah. Um, and uh, you can have a building, you can have an object. Tibor Fisher has written a book called The Collector Collector, which is narrated by a pot. <laughs> and it goes through the hands of different people and, you know, it's always been valuable and precious. It goes through its maker's hands and then it's in a museum and then it's in a private collection. What is the name of the Tibor Fisher. Tibor Fisher. We must seem a bit kind of ignorant to you compared to your students. We keep on asking you. No, at all. No, it's lovely to be asked. It's lovely to be asked. And you can always email me after. Just go to my website and it has my contact details. If there's any where you go, oh, I want to read that book you talked about, just email me. Uh, no, it's lovely to be able to give these recommendations. Um, what was the name of the book with the object being part? The Collector Collector. The Collector Collector. The Collector Collector. By whom? By Tibor Fischer. Tibor. T I B O R. I think it's a Hungarian name. And, one last one. <laughs> They're all long titles. A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. Has anyone heard of that? Yes. Yeah? Who's that narrated by? It's so long ago. It's, no, it's okay. It's good. You won't spoil it for people. It's narrated. It's set on Noah's Ark. It's sort of ten interconnected short stories that function as a novel. It's set on Noah's Ark, and it's narrated by a mystery creature which is stowed away on board, and you only find out what the creature is at the end, but you spend the whole book guessing. So it's good that you can't guess. Fantastic. So, think about who's telling the story. Change something about... So if you've written as the authorial voice, change to character. Have the character tell their own story. If you've written um, in a character's voice, or maybe... Yeah, if you're, if you're writing first person in a character's voice change something about the character possibly whichever way you want to go write down another idea another way you could go with this structure beginning, middle and end at the beginning was a little cat I have seen the end I had a middle one too but I couldn't fit it on the thing sadly um, three act structure people have heard this phrase bandied around have they? Or not? <laughs> now you have. Three-act structure is very simple. There is no mystery to it. Act one, beginning. Act two, middle. Act three, end. That's all we're talking about, yes. So if you're writing a story in the present tense, yeah. then can you change this particular structure of the story? Can you change the yes, you certainly can. Is that easier to do in the present tense than in the past? It's, no, I don't think so. Um, is it easier to, to change the structure in present tense? Because I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't mean, I don't... I don't so, when you're saying structure, when you're saying beginning, middle, and end, that's a chronological structure. Chronological structure, yes, so, that's right. So, would, that, would, would it be easier to change the chronological structure and play with that? If you're writing present tense. If you're writing present tense. Oh, I see what you mean. Or well, what you could do is change the tense to indicate where you are in the story 
or you could mix it up. So like you could tell the end at the beginning and you could tell the end in future tense and then you could tell the middle in present and, and the beginning in past tense or some kind of weird you know, experiment like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a book called The Catcher in the Rye. I can't yeah. remember who it's by. But at the beginning it starts with the boy in a mental institution because like, he's like, had a psychotic breakdown because his little brother died or something. And it starts with him in the hospital and saying, oh, stuff happened and that's why I'm here and blah, blah. And then he goes back to tell you the events that led up to yes. being in the hospital. Okay, that's really classic structure. Our, our most classic structure of telling a story is chronological. Three acts. Beginning at the middle, to start at the beginning, a very good place to start, as Julie Andrews once sang. Um, then the middle, then the end, okay? In that order. They don't have to be in that order. You can start at the end with that structure that you were just talking about and then go back to the beginning and tell it all. Fight Club does this as well, particularly the film. To my shame, I haven't read the book, but I always remember the film starts with this amazing scene of the guy tied to a chair in a burning building. I'm like, what the hell? What's going on? How did we get here? And that is the question. And then we go back right to the beginning and the story goes on and goes on until we get to that point. And by the time we get to that point again, we understand everything that's gone before. And then you have the big climax. So yes, you can start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Wuthering Heights does that too. Rebecca. It's all told in retrospective. Rebecca. Rebecca. Yes, yes, that's right. Because she's acting like a detective, isn't she? Trying to find out what went on years ago with Rebecca. Um, and I think Jane Eyre. It's been a bit a while. Yeah, I mean, kind of. But it doesn't start at the end, Jane Eyre. It doesn't say, Reader, I married him, but now let me tell you how I got there. You know, Reader, I married him legendarily at the end. But Jane Eyre starts off with, it was going to, it, there was no chance of a walk that day. She's a child at the beginning of Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is told mostly chronologically. Uh, but it is told in retrospect. It is told past tense, you're quite right. Um, so what have I done here? Secret history, is that? Secret history. It's always hard, because that starts at the end, isn't it? Oh, it's been so long. After the terrible thing has happened. It's a nice narrative hook as well. This terrible thing happened. I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you it's happened. So that you then keep reading to find out what the terrible thing is or how it happened. So, changing the order of telling the story... Let me begin at the end. I've also changed the narrative voice here because I missed that bit out. Okay. Let me begin at the end. Cinderella and Prince Charming live happily ever after. But that's not the whole story by any means. Picture the scene. I'm a young mouse. A happy mouse. A mouse with a future that included nibbling on some soil and green because I've set it in the future. When in the flash of a wand I find myself an iDroid footman model. Okay, which is, I'm stretching it to extreme, but I've decided to tell the story from the point of view of the mouse, rather than from the point of view of Cinderella. And I've also started to take this, tell the story from the end, so we know they end up happily ever after. But how, when Cinderella is a slave, is forced to sleep in the ashes, and Prince Charming is a prince? So that is the question. Finally, you can mix up your genres. Um, so... I've already kind of put my Cinderella in uh, a science fiction genre, but, uh, but I have other options. I'll try and add another genre to this. These are the ones that I can find online. Funnily enough, there are lots of log cat noirs. Um, there's a zombie genre there. 
we've got romance, we've got western, you can think of science fiction, fantasy, historical fiction perhaps. You might, did anyone write within a particular genre when they're writing a story? It's kind of adventure fantasy. Okay, great. So I would then That's challenge you. Genre. I would challenge you to either add something to that genre, make it science fiction, adventure fantasy, or make it romance, adventure fantasy. Or it's kind of romance. <laughs> oh, there we go. We've got, we've got a nice kind of hyphenated. John, did anyone else write in genre? Romance. Romance. Okay, lovely. So there, but there can also be, as as you say, hyphenated genres like sci-fi horror or horror romance, or if anyone saw Shaun of the Dead, uh, that was out a few years ago. Comedy, it was comedy horror or something like it that. It was advertised as a zom-rom-com, <laughs> <laughs> which is a really nice genre mashup. Um, so think about another genre that your story could work in, because all these stories can work in all these genres. Um, these basic plots, things like rags to riches... You could have a rags-to-riches horror story. You could have a rags-to-riches romance. Very common, pretty woman. Um, you could have a rags-to-riches western, you know, about the boy who's the stable boy and then he becomes the sheriff or maybe he becomes a, you know, a rich outlaw, whatever it is. Um, you could have a kind of tragic western. You can have a tragic fantasy book. Um, you can mix it up quite a lot. So think about another genre that you could put this story into, that you could translate it into. Write it down next to your, next to your original story. And I will give you, uh, as we are running out of time... Is that the quest of a genre too? It is. It's a, it's a plot. It's a plot. And I can tell you the seven basic plots as a bonus if you want. Um, I'll, do, I'll do that in a minute. Um, but first of all, let me just give you my genre mashup uh, of Cinderella. And by the way, I'm not saying that playing around and experimenting this way is going to get you a brilliant story, but it will get you lots of different brilliant options. And you don't have to choose all of these changes, but just one of them can make a huge difference to your story. Setting your story, you know, changing the tense to present tense. Changing the perspective particularly. Cinderella is a happy story only if it's told from the point of view of Cinderella and Prince Charming. If you tell it from the point of view of the stepmother, this is not good. Okay? It does not end happily for the stepmother. In fact, I was reading the Grimm fairy tales recently, and it really doesn't end happily for the, for the stepmother. So, you know, you change the person who's telling it, you change the story, the tone of the story. So, let's see what happens when I make Cinderella's science fiction version a western. Yep, Sheriff Charming sure has his work cut out to find herself a bride on this wide frontier of space where nary respectable woman phases into town without showing her heels again right quick. But he gets his Cinderella all right, and here's how. Told from the end, go back to the beginning. Present tense, from the point of view of mouse. I'm a young whippersnapper of a mouse at the time. My whiskers are glossy black. And my nose all a twitch for that soil and green, because we're setting it in the future too. Not a care in the world until a witch woman comes along and turns me into a damn eye droid sidekick model. There you go. <laughs> Something I had not imagined I would write. <laughs> no, I <thought> that. <laughs>
something for which there is almost certainly no demand, but something which has changed hugely from the first chronologically told, third person, past tense story of Cinderella that I, I started off with. So there you go. If that hasn't spiced up your tax life, don't know what will. Um, thank you very much. Um,